everybody, Mike and Bonnie and Tim here. Welcome to the Vox Podcast. We're so glad you're tuning in. Bonnie, why are you texting me? Oh, I'm ready. Not. Okay. <laughs> ready. He's an old one. Okay. I just got it. All right. Yes, you are ready. The hair is up today. Why? You know, it's been a week. It's been a long week. I just. So, so, so the hair can be up. <laughs> In preparation for washing or because it's been a long week. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. And uh, and Tim, it uh, how warm is it there in Auburn? Um, I'll tell you exactly how warm it is right now. It is 60. Nope. It is 82 degrees. That's awesome. Guys, this is, um, this is the best time of the year. Ohio's 93 today. And it is fantastic because you know, you just know in like two months, it'll be 60 degrees colder. Yeah. And so you treasure this, Timothy, you treasure it. No, thank you. Yep. 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 <laughs> um, all right. So today, uh, just a couple of, a couple of housekeeping items, number housekeeping item. Number one, it's nice to see Tim get some love in the reviews it's far tim, you you tim you came up aces in those reviews aces. i like the i like the tim shell reference i thought that was funny <laughs> that was genius i was like that well, was there it is so funny um so for those of you that review us it, it, i know we're we're playful about it but it really it actually very much matters in the way yeah. that um we're discoverable to people and so thank you for rating reviewing and subscribing all of that uh, in the podcast world all of that is very very important yeah. uh, to being discoverable so thank you for that and particularly just for somebody besides the two of us declaring publicly that tim is awesome that's right <laughs> and, and you know I have a he fragile ego he doesn't get enough <laughs> of that at home and so we're <laughs> So we're here. <laughs> no. Um, and so thank you for that. Secondly, we did our uh, we did our mini series. Oh, I got a release today's. Dang. I, I was forgot. just thinking that. I know. Yeah. I it, it's been so hard to remember that every day I have I have one that I need to put up. Um yeah. I'm not shoot. gonna lie, I was a little surprised every morning when I'd walk, wake up and see it on there. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, he's did it, he did it. He's there. Moving. Moving are you, shaking. Except, are except you today? I, what was surprising about it? The the attention to, to detail that I'm well known for, the yes. uh, follow through that I'm yes. I'm not as well known for, <laughs> or um, see all of the above. <laughs> the, we've gotten we we got some great feedback. So people liked so, it. It seems that way. I would say I, I got probably six or seven hundred, and by six or seven hundred I mean probably three. <laughs> um, comments directly. No, I got more than that. Um, saying that, hey, the format was good. The length was good. Um, one individual who's a who's a dear friend said that the twenty minute format's perfect because that's how long he's in the shower. Oh wow! Yeah, that's I've I I don't know that I've ever taken a twenty minute shower before. Bonnie, I mean? bet you have. I bet I you have. Short or long? It seems long to me. Oh. It takes 20 minutes just to get the shampoo out of my hair. <laughs> so, <laughs> be a while. And so it's, uh, yeah, that's tough. <laughs> okay. So, so that's, so great job. Thank you, Vox community. You guys are amazing. We'll, we'll, we'll I don't know. Maybe I, it seems like a great way to knock out some questions. 
because um, we are overwhelmed, which in, is such a wonderful problem to have. But today, uh, we got a couple things. First, um, found out earlier this week that a pastor, acquaintance of mine in Southern California, who, who I knew from his mental health advocacy, um, who had literally been tweeting in the last week about suicide awareness, uh, took his own life be, uh, by suicide. And it's just, it's just, I was so mad and so sad. And, um, you know, we, we, I bring it up just to say, hey, we've, we've talked about this stuff a bit on the podcast um, if you are somebody who wrestles with this stuff, those that that that's that material is very relevant, and um, we're very much opposed to some of the theological hot takes out there that want to lump this in with just general sinfulness or lack of faith or mm-hmm. immaturity. Now I'm now I'm all of those things. That no question about that. But the gear that I can find mentally that's just out of control, that seems like it's something extra. Yeah. And, um, and so I was just so sad. I mean, because this is a number of people um, in leadership Christian positions who have done this. And, 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 then, and then Bonnie showed me an article written by some schmo um, about how if, if somebody's struggling with mental illness publicly, they should not be in a leadership position. And... Um, and I, I thought, well, that's that's a hot take that I want to punch in the face, but um, <laughs> that doesn't need to be shared. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that you should have kept inside your own head. <laughs> oh, I know, I know. But anyway, it was just uh, just a reminder that um, the three of us. This is stuff the three of us have all wrestled with mm-hmm. um, to various degrees. I'm I'm still. Am I the only one on meds right now? Currently, yes. Yes. And, and and this is me with meds. That's the thing. Just imagine imagine without. It's uh it's it's terrible. Um but no, I mean this has been an this has been an issue for all of us and um so anyway, we want Vox to be a place where you can ask for help. Um hello at mm-hmm. Vox Podcast if you ever want to tell us your story or um or please hit us up anywhere in any way, shape, or form if we can be helpful. Literally uh, between the three of us, there have been some very deep uh, and dark valleys that we've walked through. Mm-hmm. And so you're not going to shock us with um, with stuff you're going through. That doesn't mean we know what it's like for you. It just means that instantly we're sympathetic. Um, yeah. And uh, and we want you to get help. We've I've been to therapy. I've been to spiritual direction. I've been on medication. I've done breathing. I, you know... Uh, I'm very familiar with this. Bonnie, to manage her anxiety, uh, takes long showers. No, and, I don't. Uh, um, and uh, that's a big deal. I've done all the same things and, <clears throat> and more. So, and it like ebbs and flows. Sometimes you're fine and then other times you're not fine. So, you yep. get it. Yep. Timothy, John, anything you want to add? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> that's such a sharp yeah. intake of breath. <laughs> just for, a, that's a, for that it's a wellspring of uh things but please do reach out yeah well, i want to say i do want to say get help i i also would like to say against the general consensus of you should just pray more yes, that you please. should get help yes 
not just sit alone in your room praying more and wondering why it's not working. Yeah. And we're big fans of praying. Absolutely. Yeah, 100%. This is not either or. It's just that it's, it's just the, yeah. it's just the the reduction of every issue to a spiritual issue is not correct even biblically. Yeah. So, there's spiritual component, no question. Um, but it's bigger than that. So anyway, just a just your friendly PSA from uh, the Vox team about how brutal life can be, and uh, and I think there are many things in our world, quite frankly, that that human beings are not designed to exist the way that we exist in 21st century America. We're not designed to exist in autonomous homes with our alone in cars, never interacting with people unless we have to. We're not designed to exist in small nuclear families, if, if you have one. We're not designed to exist staring at screens, but rather being outside. I mean, all, all of this contributes to the uh, total epidemic. And when the church ceases declaring good news for people who are uh, wrestling through this, and instead adds to the shame of it and stigma of it. It's, I mean, this is what happens. This is what you get. Yeah. So uh, anyway, we want to be a community where that can be talked about and processed through. Um, it's, uh, on the other, on another note um, today, we have uh, an interview that uh, is not as, as sort of um, deep as that whole conversation we just had. This is an interview with uh, a guy who I knew. I don't know if you remember Alan Hirsch, Bonnie. He, so I was part of a church in Costa Mesa, California, that was called Rock Harbor. And this was in the early zeros, uh, mid to late zeros, I should say. And, and the church was, by God's mercy and favor, the church was, was growing and there was lots of excitement, momentum, and blah, 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 which doesn't always mean that God is favoring it. It just means uh, but there were other things that that were like very encouraging to us. Um, and this guy who'd been a, a church planner in Australia shows up with this book called The Forgotten Ways. And he 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 begins, he shows up, oh yeah, he rocked our elder board. He we were all sitting uh, at this thing and he just he did this missional church thing, like church isn't to be an attractional thing, it's to be a missional thing. It was the first I'd heard of it. It totally wrecked me. We even asked him, we're like, hey, should we so, so should we just blow this whole thing up? Um <laughs> and, and, and so I've now? sort of and I've and so I've I've sort of um followed his work. Anyway, he's got a new book out uh with a pastor from Knoxville and so I was excited to read it and interview these guys and um and so anyway hope you like it we'll do a we'll do an outro for it after uh after we all listen to it and uh, see what you think all right here it is hey everybody welcome to the vox podcast my name is mike erie and i am joined today i'm really excited about the crew we got today we've got live from new york it's saturday night with alan hirsch um, who is it uh, in Redeemer, if you're familiar with Tim Keller, the Redeemer City Headquarters, HQ, and then from Knoxville, Tennessee, the epicenter of college football this season. Um, uh, my new friend, Mark Nelson. And Mark, I, I just describe, if you would, just so people can get a visual, describe your look. My look? Yeah, when you look in the mirror, what do you see? 
Oh, I see all the hair that was on top of my head that moved to the bottom of my face. Oh, I love and it. So, that makes yeah. me so happy. It's, yeah. a, it's a halo. It just dropped. <laughs> <laughs> kind of upset. It used to be horizontal. Now it is vertical. And it's gone to the front. And, and, it's a little weird. And, and Mark, do you, how, how young a person do you think you could take in a, uh, uh, and, and we pray this would never happen, but in a, in a bar fight? Oh man. In you, a think bar you, fight? Could, you think you could take maybe uh what 20 year old? Oh no. It depends on how smart they are because uh, okay. my strategy would be a, a mind game of, of wits. And as opposed <laughs> to, uh, as opposed to a uh, a physical altercation would be my guess, but perfect. But most twenty year olds that are in a bar that are looking to fight, I think I could outsmart. Okay, so that's All my right. theory. Well done. Now, now, Alan Hirsch, Alan, as I was telling him before uh, we hit record, Alan has just been a bomb dropper in my life. Um, we, I met Alan. Uh, I think it was oh five or oh six. When did Forgotten Ways come out? Yeah, so that was like two, uh, 2006, I think you're right, 2006. Okay, and, yeah. and so it was, it was the, the first, uh, well, maybe it wasn't the first, but it was the first that I knew of an entirely sort of uh, rethink about how we understand what it is to be the church. And it was very much the kickoff of kind of a missional church sort of movement. Um, and, and I was working for a church in Costa Mesa called Rock Harbor, and we were uh, very, very successful under the old paradigm. And Al came in and kind of wrecked our, I still have, I still have the notes um, from uh, the session with us, but it caused us and it caused me a great deal of re-examination about some of the assumptions we make about what uh, the American church is. And um, he's partnered with Mark and they've written a new book called Reframation. Is that? How how do you say it now? However you want to say it, brother. But I say reformation. But that could be just be my you know my Aussie way of doing it. But reframation, if you will. But it's up to you. Yeah. So it's centered around reframing, and that's a play, obviously, on the Reformation. And so yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not I'm not going to accuse these guys of not being ambitious in in their <laughs> book titles. But an entirely but. different way of seeing everything. Yes. <laughs> Well, okay, so like, uh, you know, we play on the idea of, uh, you know, the, the uh, Great Reformation kind of slogan. One of the really good things coming out of the Reformation, I think, <laughs> um, it was the slogan, Semper Reformanda, that the church reformed ought always to be reforming according to the Word of God, right? You've got to keep reforming new formats, new, new form, new expression. Uh, I think it's great. Uh, what we're suggesting here is you've got to keep reframing. Uh, yes. According to the word of God, you know, so you've got to always be thinking bigger, 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 bigger about God, gospel people. You know, that's the, that's the idea behind Reformation. Yeah. And the trick of it is when you reframe something, you're not changing the picture. So we're not proposing that we change the gospel. We're not proposing that that we mess up our belief. We're simply saying when you put a frame around a picture, you change the way that picture is perceived. You give it a second, third fourth look mm. that's mm. what we're looking to do is not we think that the picture of jesus is absolutely gorgeous but we think it might need some new frames so that people can see it in a different way when you looked at the state of the the let's just say the church of america in our sort of evangelical tribe if i can you know overly simplify 
What was it that you saw that concerned you enough that that made you want to undertake this this reframing? What was it? What was it about the the previous frame or the way you see Jesus being presented that that has um, caused concern in that regard? Well, for me, uh, it was primarily uh, deep concerns about how we've seem to have got a very shrunken view of God, particularly, um, hmm. you know, a very doctrinal, a very, um, a very stylized understanding of God that is based in doctrine. I'm all for doctrine, by the way, but it, I would say doctrine like an idea um, is like a sacrament. It's meant to point us beyond itself hmm. uh, towards the one, you know, whom the sacrament is, is meant to lead us towards, right? So you're never really meant to get stuck on the idea, you know? The idea is meant to move you on. And I think um, good doctrine points us in a direction, but you're not meant to get stuck there. And I, I'm deeply concerned about how narrow and how small our God is and how, you know, actually how small our gospel is too. So that's one of the big issues that comes up throughout the book is that we shrunken the gospel down to just a way to deal with our personal sins. But, we, you know, it, it, it is that, but it's so much more than that, Mike. So, and then the other thing for me is I think, you know, honestly, uh, this book was really almost a, a, a personal attempt to renegotiate my contract with the evangelical church. Because I, mm. I think over the last four or five years, I think it has demonstrated a certain theological and moral um, bankruptcy uh, that I, I just for me it just exposed that we don't really understand Jesus very well at all, um, mm. you know, and that really it's time it's time to look again, yeah, and and yeah, so it comes up all the way through the book. Is that true for you, Mark, as well? Yeah, and and my the angle I'm coming from too is, is as a pastor. I'm a pastor at a church, so I'm preaching and teaching each week and that type of thing. Mm. And what I I think I see in evangelicalism as a whole is this this desire, and it's much of what Al said, but this, this obsession with the answers as opposed to the questions. Mm -hmm. And it, if, if my job is simply to provide people with answers to all their questions, I will have failed as a pastor. But if, mm -hmm. if, if, I can, if I can get people to leave a gathering with us or a meeting with me and, and leave with more questions than answers, I feel I was, will have succeeded. I, I just don't think we're willing to work hard enough. I don't think we're willing to allow God to be all that God is, much like Al talked about in the reductionism. We've taken a, a God that is as wider than we can hold our hands and reduced it to the space between our thumb and forefinger. And something's got to change there. Um, there's this phrase uh, that we use in the book, um, all I know is all there is. And, and I don't think anybody really is arrogant enough to say all I know is all there is. Mm. But yet, if you look at how church goes about what they do, if you look about how followers of Jesus go about what they do, we're not willing to work very hard. We're not willing to learn more. We're not willing to expand our perspective and, and allow this, this gospel to be reframed. I think mm -hmm. we really are saying, you know, yeah, all I know is all there is. And that's it. That's mm -hmm. such a reductionary thing that we've got to, we've got to turn away from. Yeah. It's interesting, Mike, if I can add to that, you know, it's interesting when we bring up this idea um, kind of early on is that this idea that reductionism is a kind of scientific word or philosophical word. It's good. But the, the the biblical word for that is heresy. Uh, <laughs> Explain so, that because that's so a good. Genuinely, so, like, if you the word heresy, heresy, and when it's used in scripture, particularly, it uh, it doesn't mean that a person's wrong about something or they're bad people. It, it, that became nuanced, you know, uh, 
later on. So, you know, later understanding of it. But the biblical word for that means that they've got hold of something that maybe was um, uh, just, you know, was hidden and, and they've rediscovered it again, uh, hidden truth. Uh, it's funny that every heretic's got a verse of scripture, right, or two or three, mm. and they hang with it, right? And that's the problem is that they, they make the singular truth that they've discovered. It's true, but they divorce it from the total truth. So they become obsessed with a kind of singular idea, and then everything's interpreted or forced to fit that idea. And then that's why they become heretics. That's what, so the heretic mm. is the reductionist. Uh, mm. And what we're trying to do is reverse heresy yeah, because I think, you know, we've got a heretical church. Where, where we've reduced really big ideas, and, and, and not only big ideas, God, uh, gospel, human beings, you know, mm-hmm. the world, mm-hmm. being reduced down into little things, and we become grumpy and ill-tempered <laughs> and, and, you know, sometimes just out-and-out out nasty, you know, in, in the yeah. way we engage the world because we don't understand it. Very yeah, that, and that's impossible. That's the the old analogy of the elephant. You know, somebody grabs the leg, somebody else grabs the the ear somebody else grabs the the tusk whatever and they each say they have the entire elephant Mm -hmm. and that is such a reductionistic view Mm -hmm. of 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 what the gospel is and what god is and and that's what we're saying and that's that's heresy to say yeah Mm -hmm. i've got the whole thing here and i'm holding the back left leg that's ridiculous the irony the irony you would appreciate right is the people who accusing everyone else of being heretics are actually the heretics (laughs) wow just because they're because the, the litmus test they're using to judge, they've elevated to be the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. So how do you how do you walk the the balance then? Because I, I so I have two questions. One is, what are the symptoms of a reduced view of God? Because I think a lot of people would say, no, I have a really high view of God. I mean, He's omniscient, omnipresent, you know, omnipotent, all of those big omni words. Um, and uh, I affirm the Apostles' Creed or whatever. Uh, so so how does that how, how does a reduction of God, how do I practically know that that's happening in my church or uh, in me? So that's, that would be the first question. I think, I think the first way it comes out is how we tell the story of God and how we still tell the story of Jesus and how we tell the story of the gospel. We think that's one of the results of, of a reductionary theology, a reductionary view of God. We've taken a story, the analogy we use is, uh, we've t- Don Everett's mentioned this long ago. He talks about how We've taken the gospel, which is um, should explode and radicalize our lives and take us places we've never seen. And we've made it like tofu. Uh, It's tasteless. It's sponge like it soaks up whatever it's around. Hmm. He says that it should be more like sticking a warhead in your mouth, that warhead candy, where just like you're like, oh, what the what's going on in my mouth? And you either want to spit it out or you go, this has changed my life forever. (laughs) The gospel we the gospel we tell should be either we're going to spit it out because I don't want anything to do with this Jesus or it should change my life forever. Yeah. It's the mediocrity of, of the story of Jesus. We've allowed that to seep in because we want the answers. We want to be able to write the gospel on a napkin. We want to reduce it to this little bitty piece of paper or this heretical view that is only my view. When we do that, that's a, that's a huge result of, mm. of this reductionism. Mm. And it's uh, the other kind of similarly, to that, the idea that we've, you know, that that uh, we've got a rational understanding, and, and that's enough. Um, again, I, I just say, like, you know, it's one thing to have uh, one to think that you can grasp God anyway. If you got, if you think you got God in your in your doctrine, I, I promise you, it's not God that you got. Hmm. Even the name of God in the Old Testament defies any control yeah. 
it's better. Never mind I am, which is a very uh, Hellenistic way of interpreting it. If you, really as much, it's a Greek, it's a Hebrew verb. It's I will be as I will be. I will appear as I will appear. In other words, you can't control me. Mm. There's, you, you, God retains always sovereign surprise in every circumstance. He cannot be boxed. And so any attempt to box God, whether it be doctrine or in, in idolatry, which we have quite a strong critique of all throughout the book, mm-hmm. uh, any attempt to box and control and minimize uh, is, is, is a reduction. You're meant to kind of encounter God in theophany. What we say is you've got to, the, the mystery of God needs to be re-encountered again. So, mm-hmm. so, yeah. how, so how do you balance that? How do you balance the known and the unknown in that scenario? In other words, Christians are always making statements about God or for God. Um, and we're saying, listen, those kind of represent a reductionistic sort of view. But but we still we still would point people to something. So how do you how do you navigate that tension? Well, we we would point people to a mystery and not not to a doctrine. We would point people to wonder. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. not to a systematic scientific evidence for what I believe. We think that's, that's part of the result of, of the reduction that's happened is we've, we've lost our ability to wonder. We've lost our ability to live in the ministry. Uh, we, we have lost the ability to, to keep searching, keep, keep looking, keep finding new things growing from there. So mm-hmm. I think that's part of that is the answer to your first question. What are the mm-hmm. things we're losing? But I think we have to find a way to regain that and uh, and and bring myth and poetry and mystery and wonder back in into how we do faith. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If if I tried a more technical uh, answer to that, Mike, I would say, uh, and this is this is the, the remarkable thing is that I think the the early church fathers and mothers have worked this out pretty well actually. So by mm-hmm. the time the fourth mm-hmm. Lateran Council, where they were trying to grapple with how does uh, how does things in the world in which we experience, uh, you know, how are they portioned or how are they analogies of God, right? Um, and uh, they discovered this, that, you know, the, that the more you think you understand about God, which you can, there's things that you can understand. Yeah. But if you're really encountering the real biblical God, the more you don't understand, the more you understand. So that as you grasp it, it becomes even more in- ungraspable so that it's imminence and transcendence play their way out. Mm-hmm. In a dynamic, uh, so you can you can look at something and think, "Wow, I'm really getting it," and then you realize, "Oh my goodness, God is so much bigger." So, like, it's always ever great. And so, with this phrase, "ever greater God," mm-hmm. uh, actually, God is ever greater, always bigger. So, our attempt to kind of trivialize to bring down to size is that heretical kind of dynamic. Particularly, Protestants are very good at this. <laughs> uh, very good at it. I mean, we and we define ourselves over against everyone else based on our little doctrines. And, mm-hmm. You know, the only tool that we got is a hammer. Then everything looks like a nail, and we're going to hammering everything you know, with our single doctrine. Yeah. So, I, I think ever greater. You know, God is mysteriously big. He's is eternal one. So I think, you know, it's it's yeah, like as as Mark was saying, is adding wonder into the equation again. And mm-hmm. Having eyes like a child. You know, looking at God with childlike eyes. How do you practically get to that? I mean, how do you how do you reintroduce wonder? Um, because I think that, that I think a lot of us part of the reason why there's so much deconstructing of faith is because it's it's become disenchanted, right? Yeah. Completely, it's not it doesn't represent in real life what it claims to um, on paper. 
And, um, and so, so how do you, how do you sort of re-engage or reframe the, the way we look at God, uh, with these sort of provisions in mind? Hmm. Well, you know, so like, um, so two sections of the book deal exactly with that. So the mm-hmm. one deals with the disenchanting dynamics where, you know, so, um, you know, how we diminished our understanding of God. And this is a process that's been going on, well, it's a good 500 years, but accelerated in the last, you know, uh, 100 years, 50 years or so, where you know, the disenchanting through Western society, the Enlightenment, the, you know, the Renaissance, the closure to the sacred, what we call the eclipse of God, you know, that um, God hasn't moved anywhere. Things have just got in the way. So, you know, we need to think beyond what Charles Taylor calls the imminent frame. We've been stuck in imminence. We need to think transcendence. You know, we have to, but I think it takes a desire. How do you get out of it? For me, it's been uh, spending a huge, much more amount of time in prayer, bro. Mm. You know, in in reflection and contemplation of God. Uh, I think that for me has been very, very important. And it's, 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 you know, Yes, I've had, you know, in the last 10 years, a a time of significant renewal, you know, in my prayer life. Mm. It's awesome, man. Awesome. Mm. God is really awesome. (laughs) It'd make a good song. (laughs) I think it must be done. (laughs) God is awesome, man. Mark, what do you want to add to that? Yeah, I think think part of our problem... so C.S. Lewis was asked one time why he, and, and Lewis is a huge influence throughout the book, but mm-hmm. he was asked, why would this Oxford scholar, this theologian, this apologist write these books uh, called the Chronicles of Narnia? Why would he write these children's books? And he said, um, I'm not getting the quote exact, but it's something like, I just thought there was a way past this churchy way, religious way of thinking through life. And that the story could eventually be told in its real potency. Mm. I thought there was a way to move past those watchful dragons to tell the story in its real power. Mm. And I, I think, I think we have to recognize the dragons. I think we have to recognize that the things that have the, the mystery and the wonder and, and the unknowing and, and the questions uh, they've all been taken away and, and replaced with systems and, and answers and, we got to be able to say the phrase, I don't know a lot more in our discussions mm-hmm. and, and learn to apply uh, things like uh, myth in the best sense of the word myth. And if you read the Lewis, uh, yeah. you know, story of coming to faith, it was about him realizing that Jesus was a true myth and, and learning to, to bring mystery back and, and poetry and the arts. Mm-hmm. And that's just, that's one frame. I'm not saying that those are the only frames to bring, but those are the ones that we have uh, subtracted from our telling this story. The, the thing is, it's not, it's not, it's not the story that's bad. It's our telling of the story. Mm. It's not, you know, Paul said you are to be stewards of this mystery. Um, it's not the mystery that is screwed up. It's, it's our stewardship of it. Right. The story is the grandest of all. That's why we think it's not the story, the picture that changes. It's simply the frames we put around it that have to change. I love the phrase you use um, called imaginative apologetics. So I was schooled very much in the, and C.S. Lewis was used here too, and very much the, here are my defenses for the resurrection of Christ. Here are my, um, you know, here's my four proofs for the existence of God. Here's my, you know, argument for why the scripture is reliable. 
uh, and what I hear, and and obviously it's it comes throughout the book, is is this idea of engaging imagination and story, and um, in in ways that Jesus seems to have modeled. Right? He never he never just answered directly. He often yeah. you know yeah. told stories and so on. So so just make the make spend a couple more sentences making the case for imaginative apologetics and what you mean by that. Yeah. Well, let me make the case for the lament that that uh, the need for it, the desire, the the gaping hole. Uh, Tolbert Fanning, who was a, a well-known theologian, and mm-hmm. uh, David Lipscomb, Tolbert Fanning were were both big leaders. When in Fanning, the 1800s, right? Yeah. Yes. When when Fanning died at his funeral, the the phrase that was spoken about him is he waved no plumes. He wreathed no garlands, but struck from the shoulders and the vitals. He was destitute of poetry and barren of imagination. Now, <laughs> let me remind you that a eulogy is intended to say good things about someone. <laughs> right. So the, the right. person that said that about him, that he was destitute of poetry and barren of imagination, meant that as a compliment. The first thing we have to recognize is that in the evangelical world, we have we have admired the lack of imagination as a good thing yep. because it it allows us to think that we're sticking to God's word and God's word only. Mm. Don't even begin to try to convince me God is not the most imaginative creator ever and that the scripture isn't full of that creativity and that imagination. So mm. so for me, the first thing is we got to realize that's a sad lament of the mm. evangelical culture that we are mm. destitute of poetry and barren of imagination. Mm. So that to me is the first step. That's good. And Mike, just, just to, to uh, um, illustrate that, um, we took this out because it sounded so critical, but here's, here's the thing is that when I went through a seminary, it was a four-year, you know, end of kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. I did three years uh, of Greek and Hebrew. Mm-hmm. I mean, very technical, mm-hmm. you know, um, you know, it was a very technical kind of degree. And um, I cannot for the life of me remember a singular class uh, on the of, of poetry. How do you interpret poetry mm-hmm. and and biblical poetry and and stories and you know all that stuff? I can't remember anything about that. And here's the problem, right? Is that the, much of the Bible is written in poetic kind of metaphor and, and uses a lot of metaphor, right? So how you can't read poetry like it's a science book. It doesn't mm-hmm. reveal itself. So how much of our evangelical imagination? If people have a similar thing, uh, don't know how to read poetry, how are you going to understand much of the scriptures? Mm-hmm. So how much are we missing? Uh, and the idea of metaphor is such a powerful one. A metaphor is, again, like a sacrament. It's like it, 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 every metaphor uh, opens up to a whole world you know, you, it, of imagination, of, of, and, and you're meant to think through that metaphor and have mm-hmm. lots of them. Uh, you know, and, and the Bible's so filled with the stuff. Jesus uses it all the time. And most people who didn't understand metaphor Take him literally, get him wrong. You know, we'll eat your well, blood, I thought, you know, I, your Alan, bring... Alan, I thought we were taught in seminary that the way you take the whole Bible is literally, and so poetry, yeah, it would just be another case of that. Yeah, but but you can't. You know, you cannot read poetry uh, as if it's science text. Well, you can, but you're not going to get what it's trying <laughs> to say. So, how much of right. a revelation are we missing? This is one of the ways we've shrunk. Our hermeneutics, our, it's a crisis of interpretation, we call it. Mm-hmm. We don't know how to interpret what we're seeing. We don't know what a theophany looks like, right? When mm-hmm. God turns up, yes, there's holy terror, there's mysterium tremens et fascinans. That's this 
mystery beyond which you can ever can it confounds you you know mm. and, and there's this tremens this is fear you know this awe that, that that has a certain impact upon you and then of course this idea but yes you're allured into this this you're fascinated you're held and mm-hmm. every great theophany in scripture people are terrified and yet drawn into it you know you're mm-hmm. comforted and yet uh, challenged you know that, and and that's what any encounter with god looks like and we just mm-hmm. don't know how to help people find their way to that form of god so we end up with doctrines and bad-tempered religion why is that why is that so comfortable for us in other words i mean the very first you know yahweh reveals himself on top of the mountain and smoke and fire and um you know don't ever make an image and the first thing they do of course is make an image um, and, and so it seems like this has been with us for yeah. a very long time. Yeah. And it certainly it, it, is that. Okay. So that's what sits at the root of it. What's, what's the comfort then of idolatry that, that causes us even in the name of Jesus to kind of settle for these shrunken forms? Mm. Well, I think it offers us a, a way of controlling, you know, uh, you know, divinity and, and trying to, you know, hem it in, in a way that's understandable and controllable. I think it is a, a deep impulse in the human being. Um, the other thing is that, and we use the metaphor in the whole chapter on on this idea of living in a cave, um, mm-hmm. and uh, riff off the idea of C.S. Lewis's ideas uh, in The Great Divorce, where he talks about hell's doors as being locked from the inside, or you know that people living in a cave and the rationality, the way I mean, and, and the problem is that this is like centuries and millennia of cave dwelling. Uh, you know, it means there's a certain rationality of living in cave-like existence, very narrowed understanding. And the image is very, I think, very profound. If you think about a cave, uh, we use William Blake's uh, brilliant kind of piece of poetry. He talks about if if, if, our, um, if the doors of our perception were cleansed, you know, then we would see everything as it is, you know, mm-hmm. wondrous and awesome. You know, instead we kind of, shrink back into the cave, you know, and, and look at reality through the kind of little slit. In, in fact, the further you get into the cave, think about this as a metaphor, is the further back in the cave the, that, you know, you're seeing narrow and narrow understandings, you know, of what's going on outside the cave. And what Blake invites us and what we're inviting the reader to do is to just step towards the entrance again, just and put your head out the cave and take another look. Mm-hmm. And you'll see things in in a much bigger frame. You'll have your perceptions cleansed. And I think that's part of what we need. And that's called metanoia, mm-hmm. or in the Bible, best translation. The very best translation is meta, uh, above thinking above news is your mind. It's paradigm shift. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and I think we need multiple paradigm shifts every time we move towards God. It's a bigger thinking about God that is needed. You, you know, it's not smaller ever. Smaller. It's always bigger. Hmm. So we're not calling to anything less, you know, always more. Yeah. And let me, let me call out what I do for a living as a pastor is, is <laughs> we we're totally. we're horrific in terms of standing up on Sundays and, and yep. finding the easiest way to do it. And, you know, I'll use the word control and, and, and we're all, we, we Every sermon is a heresy, bro. It's, yeah. it's limiting down, right? Unless you leave people with more questions and answers, which That's is right. my point. And so hmm. I, I don't think we're willing to allow that control to be given up. I don't think we're allow. Uh, I don't think we're willing to, 
to leave with the questions as opposed to three points in a poem that meets some felt need of, mm-hmm. of what we think our people have. And that, that to me takes me to a whole nother angle on this. So the, the origin of this book, the, the idea came from, I walked the Camino de Santiago, a spiritual mm-hmm. pilgrimage with my son a few years ago. Awesome. Al, Al for years has gone to Burning Man on the Playa Nevada. And, um, on the Camino, I felt like I was clueless as how to communicate anything about the story that I was telling. I felt like I didn't know the people. I tried to explain what I did for a living. They go, so you're a priest. And I go, no, I'm not a priest, but it sounds like you're a priest. I'm not. And it shut off any conversation I could have. Hmm. And what I realized, I'll mention a paradigm shift. To me, that Camino was walking out of the cave because I realized there was a world out there that, that I was out of touch with as a pastor in terms of simply reframing the gospel and God and the world. And so my ignorance and our ignorance of the people that we're telling the story to is a huge part of the book too. We call it a lack of missional anthropology. We just, we just don't know the people that we're talking to. We don't understand their longings. We don't understand their needs. So we insert longings and needs that we think they have and that we think these, this systematic way of thinking is going to, is going to answer their questions. And again, it's easier it's, it's full of control and it takes this multidimensional gospel in God and reduces it to a flat one dimensional ossified wooden empty and legalistic doctrine. Mm. We have to move past that. We have to own it and then move past it. Mm. That's so good. So, so let's talk about how, if you reduce, if God is reduced and, and so much of Christianity is the act of reducing um, when you get to the story, right, the gospel, um, has been reduced, at least it was for me in my upbringing, it was reduced to what happens when you die sure. and what happens to that sin part of me when I die. Hmm. Um, and, and you guys spent some time, <laughs> spent some time rightly concerned about that, uh, presentation of the gospel. How, so how has uh, burning man, how has the Camino pilgrimage, how's writing this helped you to reframe the gospel story? Go for it, Mark. You want to give a shot? Yeah, that's, that's a, it's a great question, but it's, it's a lot of wrestling with this question. How do we move past these watchful dragons? And mm-hmm. so for me as a pastor, it's, it's diving into an understanding of the Zinzuk, the longings in people. For me as a pastor, it's, it's trying to understand practically what does it look like to call people to a life that is no longer reduced? Because that's, that's the result of this is that we live lives and we encourage people to live lives that are, that are less than, uh, less than ultimate uh, is the phrase we use in the book. Um, uh, the great Southern writer Walker Percy says, ours is the only civilization that has enshrined mediocrity as its national ideal. And, and, Mark would agree with that. We wrote a book on suburban Jesus, right? Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I'm just saying, yes. My wife would agree with that quote just in our marriage, but yes. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I, we have to move past that to move to to challenge and push people that it's it's not just what you're believing. It's about what you're integrating into your life to the point where you play a part in putting this world back together. Um, one of the things we do is push people practically to think about what's it mean to live a questionable life. What's it mean to participate in, you know, the Jewish phrase is tikkun olam, which means to repair the world. 
Um, that's what we believe we are called to. But to, to settle for mediocrity, to settle for a systematic belief, uh, we've got to find a way to push people towards mm-hmm. that. Hmm. Well, if I would add to that, I'd say, like, you know, one of the problems is, is say, like, what's going on on the playa um, uh, or the Camino is that, you know, human beings demonstrate their desire, their search for God in, in so many incredibly different, you know, diverse ways. And human beings experience brokenness and sin differently. It's not just guilt before God, which, you know, is very real. I believe, you know, it wouldn't diminish that in one iota. The Western tradition is generally focused on, uh, you know, right or wrong, guilt uh, or innocence. That's been the major themes in Western theology. But there are other frameworks or other ways that other issues that human beings deal with, loneliness, despair. Uh, uh, we, We look quite strongly at the idea of shame um, mm-hmm. And that, you know, we live in a highly competitive culture. And uh, when you have one winner, you create a whole culture of losers, you know, capital L over your head, loser, you know. <laughs> and all of us live under that kind of, that loser, you know. That, mm-hmm. And, and that, that's a shame narrative. You're being shamed at that point. Mm-hmm. If you create beauty, a, a, an image of beauty, you create ugliness as a result. And, and people feel they don't live up to something. That creates a shame thing. Now, you can't deal, the gospel doesn't deal with that with the justification by faith right. uh, um, kind of aspect of the gospel, which is real. But that deals with guilt before God. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Shame is the unconditional love and grace, you know, that you cannot be more loved now than you ever were. And mm-hmm. it, it's and that God raises you up, you know, he lifts up your countenance, you know. There's, mm-hmm. there's, and then there's power, powerlessness, you know, like, an, you know, like, Black Lives Matter, you know, it's like hmm. people experience there that they're being, you know, disenfranchised and they're disempowered and they, you know, they've been colonized, you know. What's the gospel response to that is freedom and liberty and liberation mm-hmm. from, you know, from oppression. It's a very real side of the gospel. It's right. not just about personal sin. Yeah. There, and there's so much in the gospel. It's, it's, it's so big that it deals with every human issue that we can experience. Mm. not just our sins and personal sins before God. That was actually one of the best parts of the book for me personally was the, the, the three frames that, that, and even that's not enough, but the, the beyond the guilt, innocence, yeah. getting into the honor, shame, the great reversal, the first mm. will be last. You see that all over the teaching of mm. Jesus. Mm. And then this liberation, that's good news for the captives. Mm. Um, and, and like we do, the heresy has been to limit the gospel to just one of those. Yeah. Yeah. No, again, th- the, the irony should be evident without using names, right? There are a lot of people around that actually try and hold people to a very, very narrow line on the gospel, mm-hmm. call everyone else heretics. Mm-hmm. And the irony is that that genuinely, by the biblical standards, that's heresy. Because mm-hmm. the gospel is always bigger than their little, you know, in, in, in reduced understanding of it. It is that, but it's always more. Yeah. So we need to think bigger. And that's, it's such a liberating, beautiful thing to, to be liberated from narrow concerns. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's simply looking outside our own lens. If we have the Western lens of the gospel, and Mike, you touched on that, then it is honor, you know, then it is a, it is a legal transaction to eliminate mm-hmm. a sin. But if we have an Eastern perspective on it, it deals with the honor and shame. If we have the Southern perspective on it, this is a gospel of, of liberation for those that are impressed, uh, oppressed and impoverished. Our problem is we're only willing to look through one of those lenses. So we've got to do practically 
to me, very practically speaking, what Paul did in Acts 17, for example, in Athens, of, of, of simply what are the dominant stories in these people's lives that we're trying to speak this story into? I don't think we know. And if, if we're only looking through a Western lens of, of how do I eliminate my guilt so I go to heaven someday, uh, we don't understand an honor and shame need mm-hmm. and want. And so how do I understand the dominant stories and dominant narratives that are, that are driving these people's lives? And again, if you look at Paul, you go, well, what are the philosophers that are speaking into this culture? Mm-hmm. Uh, we're clueless on that. Uh, mm-hmm. we, we don't understand why the heck does Brene Brown get millions and millions <laughs> totally, of, totally. of uh, YouTube views and Netflix and all this kind of stuff. What is she speaking into the dominant story of this world that mm-hmm. we're not as a church? Um, you could go, you know, to the more uh, academic philosophers or the, or the kind of the lowbrow philosophers. What are they, spe- Jordan Peterson, why has he resonated with a, a, a world, this Canadian philosopher, pseudo theologian? What is it that he's saying? Paul said, look, I'm going to examine this. I'm going to understand this. Mm-hmm. Paul dealt with the artist of his, of, in Athens. He said, well, your artists seem to say this. We, we avoid that mm-hmm. partially because we go, well, we don't want to be contaminated by the world. That's just a bunch of crap. We've got to move <laughs> past that and say, okay, if I'm going to understand and speak into this world in a very practical way, mm-hmm. I've got to know the stories they're telling. I've got to understand why they're telling them. I've got to understand the needs of this. Again, it's our own ignorance that prevents us from doing this and moving forward. One of the, Mike, one of the images just playing on that a little bit is, you know, um, it was apparently, you know, it was ascribed to G.K. Chesterton, so like this idea that the man knocking on the door of a brothel is looking for God. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, it's an interesting statement that, I mean, like the, the, the immediate thing to say is, you know, well, well, so ask the question, what's really being sought when someone goes to a brothel? You know, um, you know, well, you know, if you put aside the judgmental thing in the first instance, you know, tomorrow or that, just, just for a while, just hold on that. What is really being sought? Well, and it's an attempt at intimacy. It's, it's a false attempt, but it's an attempt to be touched, uh, to have ecstasy just for a brief moment to get over my miserable kind of existence or, mm. you know, um, mm-hmm. to be, you know, to be embraced. It's false. You're paying mm-hmm. for sex, but it's an attempt to reach for ecstasy mm-hmm. and for the things that when people take drugs, which I, I mean, I come from that kind of world, you know, I, I was, you know, I came to the Lord, I'm using lots of, <laughs> lots of drugs, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but you know, every attempt to get drugs is trying to kind of reduce suffering or otherwise uh, achieve an ecstatic experience. Now, again, mm-hmm. it's false looking for the right thing in the wrong places. So I think we need to look again at what, what people are doing and interpret, so what is really being sought there? Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, uh, we call these saturated phenomena. You know, what is really being sought mm-hmm. in an idol? You know, what, and it, it's a clue to what people think is important. Mm-hmm. And then the gospel comes to bear. It comes alive. It resonates. Right. Yeah. Right. When, you, when you look at the example of Jesus, I, I love John 4 might be my favorite passage in all of Scripture. And when he meets this woman at the well, mm-hmm. we all know that he doesn't come with condemnation. He doesn't come with that. The, the phrase that I use is he unwraps her uh, wounds uh, like a doctor unwrapping the wounds of, of someone that has come to see him. Mm-hmm. And, and he understands that what she is longing for it, it man after man after man said, yeah, you know what? Yeah. The guys you're living with now is not even your husband. 
he understand that she's in this dehumanizing cycle of wanting and longing and for something that she has yet to find. Mm-hmm. And, and she's not looking for a systematic way to make sense of her life. She's looking for someone to come in and, and speak to her needs, speak to her wants, speak to her desires, because as the Chesterton quote says, that's what she's looking for. She's looking for God. She's looking for someone to come in and do what Jesus did. Mm-hmm. If we can do that, we take it someplace else. Mm-hmm. It strikes me too, as I'm, I'm hearing this, that part of the impoverishing of our gospel is that theology has been for a very long time, the province of white uh, Western men. Yeah. And, um, and so those have been the only voices in the room. And I wouldn't know there's a guy named Kenneth Bailey who lived in the Middle yep. uh, East. Yeah. And he, I mean, uh, he blew my mind when yeah. he started opening up Luke 15 uh, from an Eastern perspective. Yeah. Um, I, there are some, some women who have, uh, I've been reading, who um, read from a, a, an oppressed kind of perspective. And, and so you just, you, you realize a central task in recapturing the wonder is elevating these other voices. Yes, Exactly. That uh, that provide lenses that we can't get any other way, right? Yeah, well, in- yes. Sorry, bro. I thought you might finish. Um, yeah, I would. I would totally agree with you on that. And particularly if you just stay with the whole female thing, you know, if, if uh, you know, as the Bible tells us that you know, humans are made, a male and female made in God's image, and then you know, so the male and female reflect God, you know, together, not just one. The problem is that you know when you comes down to kind of, um, again, Protestants particularly, because we have no female heroes. Mm-hmm. We have no, very few. You, 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 you can rake through history. There's no female heroes. And the problem is that um, one, of the, <laughs> one of the cheekier definitions of, uh, of uh, autism, uh, autistic thinking, is exaggerate. And I'm no kidding. It's called exaggerated male brain syndrome. Uh, autism. Wow. It's exaggerated male brain syndrome. If you think about our theology, it's all written by males. And mm-hmm. so we've, we've got like an autistic theology. Uh, we don't have a female perspective. So how are we ever going to understand God? There's another reduction at the very deepest level of consciousness. Boy, amen. Is that we've, we've actually obliterated the feminine perspective of God. Now, right. that, how is that possible? And you end up with an over-masculinized God who's violent. You know, right. All the rest of it. Right. Yeah, it's huge. Well, listen, gentlemen, I am very grateful for your time. I, the book is called Reframation, which is my very slow way to say it. Alan, say it in a cooler way. Reformation. Yo. Yes, yes. <laughs> Seeing God, people, and mission through enchanted, re-enchanted frames. Alan Hirsch and Mark Nelson. Mark, what's the name of your church in Knoxville? It's called Crossings. Crossings. Perfect. Mm-hmm. Downtown Knoxville. Yeah, crossingsknoxville.com is where you'd find us. And Mike, can I say that they can get the book from, you know, it's cheaper with us uh, on reframationbook.com. Oh, good. That's good. Uh, And uh, it's cheap and the the, uh, shipping's free as well. So otherwise, Amazon or any any of the other kind of uh, of outlets. Okay, reformationbook.com. That's excellent, gentlemen. Hey, I just want to say thanks. I, I really enjoyed reading it and grateful for your hard work and research. All right, guys. Well, what did you think about that? Mr. Hirsch, Mr. Nelson. I loved it. I feel like they're my people. I feel like, once again, I want to be friends with them. And Erie, you got to be friends with them first this time. You know, Bonnie... <laughs> 
The fact that you sound surprised by that is so insulting. And I would just um, give Bonnie a little bit of time and Yeah. I know, I actually would like their emails. So <laughs> <laughs> you can. No, but I really liked it. Um I well, I don't know. I don't want to start really. I want someone else to start. You're okay, starting. well there are three options and you've already begun. And Tim is not known <laughs> Tim is not known as our starter. That's true. Okay, I'll go then. Um, I like really enjoyed. I enjoyed <laughs> that they said um, when they talked about um, reframing the whole story so that you, you there had to be a different way than just like this one way we're looking at it, right. and uh, bringing creativity in and the genres of each book and like how th- that doesn't pin God down. Like if we just read it literally, like you said, um, that you sometimes learn in. Um, in seminary, as we both have done, is that like, if we just read it this one way, you get this very narrow scope. But the thing that got me was the question that you asked them when he was talking about that that can lead actually to heresy is when like God is so small and we're so Mm -hmm. intent on these small or these very specific doctrines, Mm -hmm. interpretations and way to read it. And what really got me like in the gut was when you said, um, why is that idolatry so comfortable to us? Hmm. And I thought that was super fascinating because um, I think it's comfortable. I think it's safe. Mm -hmm. For some reason, I think people feel unsafe with a wondrous and mysterious God. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that brought that out for me in that in that interview, which I thought. What do you think that is? Um. I, as well as a person like we talked about the intro with anxiety mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. i i become anxious because i cannot control or even know the outcome of something mm. and so when i mm. Come yeah on. so when i Come don't on. when i don't have a set of things that will happen if i do a then b will happen that makes yeah. me anxious and i that that can bother me and spin me out quickly so even like something when we're talking about like my biggest source of anxiety is about my children and about yeah. like their health and well-being. And I know that's trauma from mold mm-hmm. and from having a stillborn, but it, that's mm-hmm. what it is. And so then the thought of like, give your kids over to Jesus and trust this. If I don't know what that means specifically, and there's not <laughs> promises, and if I give this over, this will happen. That's right. a source of greater anxiety for me. Mm-hmm. No, that totally makes sense. How how does it work, if you don't mind me asking? Uh, was that tough in the beginning in your marriage? Um, here is this person you think you know. You marry them. There are no outcomes that you can guarantee, and yet mm. you're called to devote, you know, the rest of your life to loving and serving and blessing this person. Was that ever a thing, or was that different? Uh, I think that's a little different for me. I think that if you asked Cy that question, he would probably say yes. Because immediate, Cy's pretty even keel. Like he's mm-hmm, very, mm-hmm. even if he's going through something or making a shift in his thinking or beliefs, he's still pretty even keel. Whereas mm-hmm. I'm not. I'm like way all over the map. So I bet if you asked him, you'd get a different answer. Because <laughs> for me, <laughs> it felt very stable. And I okay. don't think it did for him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but I'm meaning for you in the sense of, um, is, it, is the transition, that's the part that's so scary. It's not... Oh, yeah. It, once you're cemented in relationship, 
there, there is a trust and a wholeness and a security that comes from that, but that's entirely different from the security that comes from having the right doctrine, um, Mm -hmm. and having checked the boxes. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. So, so when you were in the checkboxing mode, right? I mean, you could never check enough boxes or you didn't know for sure if they were checked. So I was just, I was just, I just didn't know if, as you went from sort of, um, that contractual thing to more the covenantal thing, if that anxiety lessened. You know, I didn't get, I didn't have anxiety ever. I mean, I was a worried child in person, but I didn't have anxiety until after our stillborn. Mm. So Mm. that was a little different. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. That totally makes sense. Yeah. I, the, the heresy, the definition of heresy really got me to, that was the, one or two of the biggest takeaways was the idea that heresy isn't false. Heresy is just misprioritized. Heresy mm. is taking one bit and defining the whole by that bit, which yeah. seems, and this goes back to even something that Fitch said, right? Where, where there's a needed corrective, but that becomes a banner and that banner then is used to d- determine us versus right. them. This seems like a very similar enterprise where hey, guys, we're really missing, and it could be social justice, it could be justification by faith, it could be like we were talking about Reformed theology, um, it could be any of that. And and um, then the temptation becomes, oh, I find this needed corrective, and usually it is a needed corrective, uh, but, then, but then I define the whole thing by it, and that's what heresy turns out to be, which, which is pretty interesting, I thought. Yeah, yeah, you know? that was fascinating. Yeah, and how how apparent of the human condition of like <laughs> we try to correct and we always overcorrect. Mm-hmm. I don't know. We're just, we're just not good in the middle. <laughs> no, that's it. That's it. Yeah. And they, and Hirsch has a word for that. It's the liminality. It, oh, like the, the liminality uh, is a, is a, the in-between space. Yeah. Right. It's the, it's the liminal space is the space where you haven't fully left one thing and fully entered into another thing. Mm-hmm. And Absolutely. And a lot of Christianity is designed to keep us away from that space. So whenever you start deconstructing, look at the words we use to describe it, right? Deconstructing faith. Well, I don't even know if that's the right word for a lot of what people are doing. I think what people are doing is actually recovering faith or mm-hmm. they're, they're pushing through the dust bins of a uh, lots of tradition to see, Hey, is this, does this actually have a concrete floor or has right. this just been passed along to me? You know what I mean? But, but notice yeah. how negative the language is for that, right? It's doubt, uh, it's disbelief, yeah. it's deconstruction. And if you, and, and if you doubt one part of it, you're doubting the whole thing. And I just think that whole way of seeing it has to die. Yeah. Um, and, and, and that's part of what they mean by reducing, right? The great reduction. They talk a lot about this in their book is like, well, right. we've reduced God to this bite-sized thing. We've reduced the story just to forgiveness of sins. We've reduced, um, you know, the heaven to just what happens after we die, you know, blah, 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 blah. I mean, it's the, it's the all, and I think we'd resonate with all of that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I know. Yeah. The reduction mentality was really good too. And when they discussed, um, like when, when they were talking about the reduction and how then, I don't know, it, it reminded me of even Keys, Matt, and Walsh when they were talking about mm. having um, mm. really practical implications. Because if mm-hmm. we reduce something like heaven to what happens mm-hmm. when we die, then 
that's how we're living. I mean, we're not living this yep. full life now. So spiritually right. speaking, too, it's this reduction of theology, but then the spiritual lives we live is very reduced, too. So one of the one of the things I didn't get a chance to ask them directly, but I was thinking about it as I was reading the book, how, how practically do we try to fight uh, that temptation? Because anytime I hear things like this, I mean, I always, I always want to kind of apply it to me first and I'm going, okay, well I do that. Um, how do you, cause there's this beautiful passage in, um, oh man, is it Caspian? It's in the Chronicles of Narnia. It's my favorite, my favorite snippet from the Chronicles of Narnia. And, um, I start, oh yeah, it's Prince Caspian. There it is. And so this Lu Lucy, like she's the youngest of these school kids that finds herself in this magical land and uh, the land is under siege, but uh, there is this Jesus figure called Aslan, who's this great lion. And there's this, this, um, little story. She says, Aslan, Aslan, dear Aslan, sobbed Lucy at last. They've been looking for him in this book. This isn't the first book, but they've encountered him before, but they can't find him in this latest adventure. The great beast rolled over on his side so that Lucy fell, half sitting and half lying between his front paws. He bent forward and just touched her nose with his tongue. His warm breath came all around her and she gazed up into the large wise face. Welcome, child, he said. Aslan, said Lucy, you're bigger. That is because you are older, little one. Not because you are, she replies. I am not, but every year you grow, you will find me bigger. Boom. Mm. And Dang. I love it um, because that, that one of the ways to, to test, I don't know, and this isn't, uh, maybe this is too strong, but one of the ways I try to help measure spiritual maturity is how big a view of Jesus do you have? And I don't mean... Jesus like is in everything. Like some people go, I think way too far with that. But, um, I, but I mean, in the sense of, are you, are you more enraptured? Are you more compelled? Is Jesus getting bigger in your estimation? Like, like, I love that line. The more you grow, you will find me bigger. Because mm -hmm. what happens in the, in, in the new Testament is that Jesus just starts as this uterus in Mary, uterus. <laughs> Oh my God! Um, how about a zygote in the uterus of Mary? Jeez. Although Jesus was a uterus, Jesus could have been. <laughs> this is a whole new take on the story. Seriously, that was that is how miraculous the birth was. Okay, <laughs> is that is that G no Jesus started as a uterus? Okay, so but we go from a zygote to go. to. Later in the New Testament, you know, they're writing things like um, he is the image of the invisible God and through him and for him, all things were created and by him, all things were made. And, you know, you just like Jesus just gets bigger right. as you go through the pages of the New Testament. And so my question for you guys is, OK, um, if the great temptation is reductionism, what practically mm -hmm. do you do to keep that from happening? Like, what are spiritual disciplines? What are ways in which uh, we practically can war against uh, the great reduction? Yeah. All right. What do you think? So my, my first thing is Pearl Jam. I mean, that's the first thing 
when you combine it with Coors Light, you will be amazed at the things you discover in the Bible. Okay, that's all I'm going to say. Oh my Bonnie, gosh. <laughs> Bonnie, go. Um, I actually find, and this is going to come around, so just bear with me. We're um, Reading everything I can read that's not a Christian book, like hearing s- stories. Whoa! I know. Um, and Heresy. reminding me of how big the world is because my problem is is if i stay in my small world i think god is the god over that world and so if i hear these other stories of other people and other things i remember like there's this huge world out there and god is if i believe what i believe he's Mm. covering the whole world but uh Mm. spiritual discipline wise the other thing i think is a has been a problem for me actually in my life and a lot of people that i've come in contact with we've heard a number of these bible stories again and again and again Come and on. even if we have like a new take on it, it's still basically the same thing. And um, <laughs> so, and that can get tiring, but also it's cemented in your head. You don't always like are able to look at it differently. So one thing I actually give people that come to me for spiritual direction or in like groups is to do um, imaginative contemplation from nope. Ignatian spirituality. Nope. That sounds like yoga. And I rule nope. that out <laughs> automatically. Not- it's they uh, coming from a woman who has a Harry Potter tattoo. <laughs> I mean this this is the truth. This is what the road to hell looks like, ladies and it gentlemen. Was paved with good intentions, okay. <laughs> um, no, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Keep going. That's okay, but it, there's like a a background sound, and it can be like a music or whatever. But also, usually, sometimes it's like the sound of the time. So if like the story is taking place in a marketplace, it'll like mimic those sounds. But the point mm. of it, and then they read you through scripture, like a passage, and then they ask you questions, like "Who are you in this passage?" Or they mm-hmm. at, they prompt you to look at the passage from somebody else that's like mm-hmm. not even in the story or whatever, and it forces you to look at it from different angles. So kind of what we talked about last week, if we can learn to read scripture through these different voices mm-hmm. and hear different stories and different like. Uh, people's thoughts and beliefs in their journeys, I don't think that you can reduce it anymore unless hmm. you're willing to silence those other points of view. Hmm. Nice. All right. I like that. That's for me. That's good. That's good. So so there's a, a willingness to engage outside of the small, narrow confines of, of Christian thought. Mm-hmm. And then and then the secondly is let's get let's get Buddhist. And no. um uh no okay <laughs> so let's get contemplative contemplative somebody it's so it's so funny i have a friend who corrected me on my pronunciation of teresa of uh avila avila and and just speaking of con- catholic contemplatives and and i don't know which it is but but her one piece of feedback after listening to many episodes, was I pronounced that wrong? Oh my gosh, she would go to. I can't pronounce anything right. Right, <laughs> and I get nervous. And well, like... there's a Mexican restaurant that I love in Southern California called Avila's, and so I always, whenever I see the spelling, I think Avila, and I think yeah. I think you're like my this is a, and it's was, a spiritual experience for you. It's a Spanish restaurant. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's fine. Okay, all right, Tim. What about you, buddy? I find solace in the mystery and the wonder or that kind of stuff that we were talking about at the beginning. Um, that stuff helped like enforces my faith. So mm. I find a lot of like, I will read a lot of poetry or I will watch a lot of like, uh, 
I've been watching a lot of uh, NASA videos lately because they've been doing nice. lots of oh, specials cool. on on these yeah. satellites that they sent out for specific purposes. Like the other day, Mazzy and I were watching one on Saturn and this satellite that was circling each of the moons and taking these high-res photos. And then they like crash landed it. Its last thing was crashing into Saturn. And it was just like this, all the stuff that exists out there and doesn't really care about us and it's doing its own thing out there. And I just feel like the more that I kind of look around and they, and they talked about artists and how artists are like important voices for, to pay attention to. And I think that poets are people who have their fingers Mm. on the pulse of humanity. And you can learn a lot from reading or listening to poets. And also Mm -hmm. like, I think that John chapter four has come up in conversation four times for me in the last week and a half that I haven't Mm. brought up. So I keep, I've been on a, on a bent since the Elaine, like, well, I can't remember her last name, but um, Keith. yeah, that episode of re and Bonnie just said this too, reading things, going back through scripture and looking at it through the eyes of the mar- marginalized. And for mm-hmm. me, that stuff has been making Jesus bigger. So I just feel like he's continually like, he's continually showing me new facets of things that he did 2000 years ago that I already know, mm-hmm. but I'm, I'm learning it through different angles and it's, that has made things so much bigger instead of reduced. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so good. That's so good. Um, I would add, like, I, I actually think this is a super important um, conversation spiritually to have because there's a sense in which people, and this we hit this in the stages of spiritual maturity way back, way back in the day, but there's a sense in which people need some solid structure um, yeah. to kind of build their faith on. And then uh, it seems pretty normal for people to kind of come around and, and take second looks at that structure yeah. and, um, and ask questions about it. Well, th- it seems like this doesn't fit with this, and this seems like this is out of place. And, and I, I think all of that's super healthy. Um, and it doesn't necessarily have to lead to whatever, to bad. But um, so, so for me, um, the idea that Jesus, you, you have to make him smaller in some ways just to get a glimpse of what it is that the message is, right? This Jesus has come, he's died, he's lived, he's risen, you know, he's uh, reigning and ruling at the right hand of the Father. I mean, there's a sense in which you have to sort of build that superstructure. And then the danger becomes you just stay there. And, and, you know, even though Paul says the God does not live in houses made by human hands, like, I think that's a metaphor too, right? Mm-hmm. He means it literally like temples, but I think that's, that's like our imagination, our constructs, our, our theologies, right? That he's bigger. So for me, one of the most important spiritual disciplines I practice is being insanely curious yeah. mm-hmm. um, because Paul is so clear that it doesn't matter where truth is coming from but we can claim it, right? This is at the end of first Corinthians three, because all things are yours. He says, um, that, that, you know, it's exactly what you guys are saying, whether it's the arts, whether it's science, whether it's medicine, whether it's architecture or literature, um, uh, my world gets bigger whenever I'm engaging with those things. And Mm -hmm. so I actually, I actually enjoy seeking out challenges to faith. Like Mm -hmm. I, I very much want to hear the best stuff that disagrees with the stuff I think. 
Mm. Um, because it ultimately drives me, it ultimately drives me to God with it. I mean, and I know this is kind of a cheesy cliche thing, but it's, it's actually really true where I, I love picking up a books or articles that have the most insane, you know, anti-Christian stuff and, mm-hmm. and digging into it. And, um, I, for some reason that keeps my faith very lively and very robust. I think the other thing, uh, that is super important for me, but hard is, um, uh, time to work on my devotional life with Jesus. Like I have a, I have a great intellectual life with Jesus, but to sit and to like invite him to father me or to heal or to, you know, like I'm not good at that stuff. And so very often I have to take walks to do it or I have to be outside to do it. You feel like but, you're not good at it because it doesn't come naturally? Well, yeah, that's part of personality, yes. But that's also, I think, part of one of the ways I've kept God at a distance is I've always found God fascinating. Mm. And, and that's cool. But but if that's all he is, then, you know, I mean, that that, that isn't the living God of the consuming fire that the author of Hebrews speaks of. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like there has to be this, this personal encounter. And I've had some of those, but I'm much more comfortable with God sort of as an object of study and thought uh, than God as somebody who's invading and disrupting. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so, so for me, um, I've, I've had uh, the curiosity side is a great, a great thing, but there's this other part where um, I deeply desire to encounter God uh, in my inner life. You know what I mean? And so some of that yeah. contemplative stuff, even though I was totally teasing, um, like that's been powerful stuff, you know, yeah. that the, whether it's the, like uttering the Jesus prayer over and over and over again, or Dallas Willard had this great idea to take the Lord's prayer and pray it in your own words throughout the day, change the words to it. And I find that to be unbelievably compelling. You mm. know what I mean? So stuff like that. Um, and, and, and that, that tension between fascination intellectually, but then a de- uh, devoted, kind of heart and affection towards Jesus, that is what keeps him really alive and well in my, yeah, you know, in my brain. Yeah. And, um, but, but I think what, what Hirsch and Nelson are onto is absolutely right. One of the great tragedies of this version of Protestantism, at least that we've all, you know, been raised in. Of, yeah. Is that we're all realizing, wow, it just, it's, it's very, very thin. Um, mm-hmm. And, and it's not that it's false. It's just not that it's big enough. Yeah. It's just yeah. Like a little you fraction, know, or, a little window of. Yeah. It's just that it's big enough or no. What am I trying to say? I'm so tired too. <laughs> it's, it's not big enough. That's what I'm it's trying to say. It's just that it's not big enough. Yeah. Correct. That's what I'm trying to say. Yes. You already said it once. So you did say it. Oh, so I didn't have to correct myself. No. Awesome. So, so I, I think they're like the, so that, that quote from Aslan and Lucy, like that, that's kind of a, uh, an image I have yeah. that I play mm-hmm. with in my brain. Uh, C.S. Lewis if had I were another one like, too that was not in one of the books. That was him talking about God as a lot, like a, God is like a, a cornered lion. Like you should, it should be, he should be approached. And th- this idea of like, the what the word that there is a there is fear in the word awe as well you know like there mm-hmm. the awe is a huge mm-hmm. encompassing thing and we've kind of 
the 80s kind of took it and just made it like a neon font but there's there's more to <laughs> awesome sense. than that yeah and i so that the everything that he does with oslin and then whatever that quote was from that i just butchered um great does create such a great like big picture of this you know entity that can mm. lick you on the nose but is the most terrifying creature that exists in you know in mm. narnia and it's such a, a broad fascinating thing to sit with and kind of pick at and you know what's interesting what you just said that tim that description is that like really opened something up for me because i think a lot of times out of fear is the reason that we have these tight doctrines hmm. mm-hmm. but what mm-hmm. if the fear and awe of how he's the most terrifying creature as tim just said in this like awe-inspiring way what if that moved us to a bigger picture? Mm-hmm. Is it a, a picture like they were saying, a picture of wonder versus a picture of being afraid that we have mm-hmm. to get everything right? Um, yes. I don't know, just something to think on. No, that's so good for me. Weather does that. So, like back in seasons now, um, California does not have them. Just to be clear, um, <laughs> at least where I lived, maybe other places. Southern California but, does not have them. That's true. No. That's true. Um, but man, the, the contrast between, so I, I love, I love, and I know this is dumb, but I love severe weather. Mm. Like I, I just, it, there, we had a tornado warning and I go running out my back porch right, Mike, and I'm just how, out How there. real is this? Cause my, I have a bucket list item and it's, I want to go, real. I want to chase a tornado. I want to go tornado chasing. Well, well, let's go. For real? Cause I'm serious. Okay, I would like to say on a road trip. And we'll podcast I was it. maybe 10. We were driving and there was a funnel cloud and my dad pulled over and we watched it and it was the most (laughs) terrifying thing. And my mom's screaming and my dad's like, this is the best. Yep. 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 That's it. And and so we have these summer thunderstorms that just blow up out of nowhere. And absolutely in the, in the, in the cloudier and the more awful and the wind and the, I just love it. Like there's something primal about that and then you contrast that with like what it feels like when it's snowing yeah and there isn't a sound mm-hmm. um you know there's just at, literally there's no sound everything is blanketed and you're just like oh my goodness um or what it's like when it's when it's you know uh it's torrentially raining and you're out in the middle of it i don't know there's something about that 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 captures my heart in the fear way in the best oh, yeah. kind of fear yeah you know what i mean because mm-hmm. there's not enough of that. You're right. Jesus has become my my friend. He's become my buddy. The, He's become my therapist. The buddy Jesus. And, Did you ever see Dogma? Oh, of course. Come on. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. So anyway, um, any last thoughts, my friend? So yeah, I, I, thought, I thought their general points were excellent. It, it produced lots of thinking uh, in me about, okay, how do you, how do you keep, how do you keep Jesus... Um, as the the revolutionary, uh, most compelling human person in the history of the world, kind of, how do you keep that front and center? You keep Jesus um, front and center. Oh boy! <laughs> now, what's your Tim? What's your shirt say? Endor Park Ranger. <laughs> <laughs> now, if you're not familiar with the Forest Moon of Endor. That is in uh, that is in episode five. Yeah, right or six, uh, six, six. six. Return Hoth of the Jedi. Five. Yes. So anyway, an Endor Force Ranger, 
Uh, and you are beginning to look like an Ewok the I'm more your there. beard grows. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. Um, last thoughts, Bonnie. I wanted to, this is not maybe quick. I wanted to, I would love to hear from you guys, maybe one, two, three max ways in the past four or five years. You, uh, something, a theological thing that you held has become bigger. Ooh. Oh. Ooh. Well, Tim's got to answer that one. <laughs> Tim's trying to go back to the one, two, three, four, five. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Where a theological issue has become bigger, not Jesus, or like but an something issue. about Jesus, whatever it, pertaining to this conversation of as you've gotten older, ah. he, Jesus, or yeah, because of that, a doctrine then has gotten bigger for you, or whatever. Ooh. Okay. All right. You have to answer too, but I will. This is this might make us long, um, but I, I okay. So one of the places, stop me if I've told this story, so we don't have to tell it. But one of the places that feeds my creativity and melancholy is Epcot at Disney, at Disney World. There's this park called Epcot, which has this back area where there are like nine different countries um, around this lagoon. And you, they have, you know, restaurants and they're staffed by people who are from that country who come over for a year at a time oh, and wow. they, and they do the customs. So I've always, I've always found it, um, super compelling that it's kind of like, you know, it's kind of like the world in a tangible Disney way coming to us, you know? And so you walk around and here's Morocco and I can go sit down in a Moroccan cafe and have Moroccan beer and food and talk to people who are from Morocco. And, you know, it's just, it's that sort of thing. Anyway, um, I was, I went down there because I felt like I haven't heard, and I know this is, oh, this is so Christian-y and I hate it. Um, but I, I felt like I hadn't heard God's direction or voice in a while. And... Um, and my real life isn't the best place to hear for me, just because I'm always I'm 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 always living in my head and I'm thinking about stuff and you know blah 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 blah. And so I went down, and I I grabbed a notebook, a blank journal, and I so I sat down at a table across from Mexico. Thank you. And um, I said, <laughs> okay, God, what's what's in my heart? And and then I just started like journaling and all of this i mean on i mean unbelievable stuff started coming out hmm. and i went for two hours straight just writing drawing and putting connecting things and it was like okay well that's really cool so i walk around for the rest of the day and i'm thinking i'm praying whatever next day god feels super distant super far away i feel like ah maybe that was just all stupid and coincidental and i'm such a or fraud just disney and, it was Disney or Disney, magic. It was the Disney magic. <laughs> yes, it was pixie dust. And, you know, and I, I'm just, oh, I'm so stupid and this is lame and whatever. And I'm like, well, God, would you speak to me today? And nothing, 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 nothing. But then I have this fleeting thought as I'm walking around. Hey, why don't you ask me um, to share uh, your faith with someone today? Now, again, in the annals of evangelical Christianity, <laughs> yeah, that, is like, like, that is no like, that is like the, that's the coup de gras, 
right there. Yeah, right? That's the pinnacle that God would speak to me and someone would fall on their knees and yep. accept Jesus right in the middle of Norway. And they would <laughs> repent of their, you know, frozen gods and Elsa, oh you know, whatever. Okay. Repent so, of Elsa. <laughs> let it go. <laughs> I see. I see many statues. I see you are very religious. Um, so, so I know this is a long story. I'm so sorry, but it does get to a, a point you're asking about, Bonnie. Um, so I started, I, I said, okay, all right, well, this feels dumb. God, would you... <laughs> this feels um, dumb. Oh, totally. God, would you allow me to share my faith with someone today? Didn't think a damn thing of it, okay? Yeah. It wasn't like I was looking... God, just show me the person. You know, I just yeah. kind of went about my day. And, oh, I'm sorry this is taking so long, but I want to do it justice, guys. You don't need so, to apologize. I'm like, so, I'm actually on the edge of my seat. So I'm sitting on this bench and I'm overlooking the lagoon. And Because what I do is I, I walk and then I'll just sit for a while and think and I won't have any agenda. I'll just, wherever my brain goes. And these two girls... Uh, they were in high school, college, so they were 18, 19. They sit down next to me, and they just, I mean, instantly, they turn and they engage me in conversation. Like, instantly. Hey, why are you here? Why are you sitting here alone? What are you doing? Where are you from? Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and, and, and there's this back, there's sense in the back of, oh, oh, these are the people, okay? <laughs> like unbelievable, unmistaken. I'm like, okay, well, ooh, great. So so let me pull out my spiritual survey and, you know, no, I mean, so I'm just, I'm like, okay. So I'm expecting it, but I'm not sure what to do. Anyway, these two girls are, live about two hours away. It's one of the girls' birthday, all right? She is there celebrating her 20th, 21st birthday. I don't remember which it was. And she's here with one friend, and and you can tell they're they're not like the super put together crowd, right? They they're coming from a rough place of Florida, and and so I just started asking her. Well, I'm like, well, why why are you here on your birthday and not at home? You know, we're not celebrating with your family or whatever. And she goes into this story about um, how you know her her dad works and her mom doesn't pay attention to her and her brother plays mm. video games and she's literally just all alone she's never felt you know affection or prioritization from her family she doesn't say it like this but she's just talking about how you know she goes to disney to just kind of feel magical right to feel mm. feel some sort of transcendence again she's not using these words at all um and uh, i said well, what are you going to do you know, what are you going to do? And she's like, oh, we'll probably hit like McDonald's on the way out or something uh, as we drive back. And and there's this overwhelming, crushing, like deep emotion that like I can't even describe it. And and um, and I and, and again, this is just one of those I hate to even put words to it because it sort of robs it. But um, I pull out. I pull out $50, which was all that was the cash in my wallet. And I just say, um, well, then on behalf of the family that you should have had, but don't, allow me to treat you to a birthday dinner. Mm. And, and, and she just explodes in tears. 
I explode in tears. It is so, it is so freaking holy. And, and, and I, and then I just ask him again, I, 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 this, I felt like I was carried along. I ask him if I can pray for him, mm. which I don't, you know, that's not a normal thing I do. And, and I just begin to pray blessing over these two and, and they're just, I mean, they're just sobbing. I mean, uh, it's, it's absolutely insane. Mm. And so, so I, I leave, you know, I, I pray, hand them the money. And again, I'm not at all trying to get credit for any of this. Um, I walk away and I go behind this pavilion and I just, I just fall down and sob. I just start mm. like, like I've not been in touch with that kind of power and love and blessing in so long. Mm. I mean, I, it was so thick over these two. And, um, and I'm just sobbing. I mean, I'm just, I'm just sobbing for half an hour because I'm so privileged that I would get to be a part of that. Yeah. And, um, and so what it did, I had been, I found myself lamenting that I was getting older and thinking, you know, the window, because what they tell preachers is that, listen, you reach, you reach 10 years to either side of you, right? So once you, once you hit my age, which is late forties, you're really only relevant to late thirties and to late fifties. And, um, and, and for some reason I've been really grieving that cause I've always felt very drawn to college students and yeah, whatever. And it was as, as if God was like, he'd taken all I've learned with Seth and Nate and Hannah, and he'd given me a, a bit of this father sort of heart. And, and there was just this deep sense of like that, that's what you're going to be doing. Mm. Like that, that is a, sorry, that's just a really like, like that to bless like that. Um, I, I, you know, I, I was just, I was so struck. And so I, I repented as I'm sobbing, I just repented of this, like, cause I, I feel again, this is all the career pastoring talking, but I always feel like the best years are behind me. And, um, and so there was this, like, I don't know this, like, and I know I don't want to sound patriarchal here cause it's not that, but it was like the blessing of a father, like how, yeah. how much good that could do in the world. Mm-hmm. And I was sitting there like, holy crap, if that is what's coming, I mean, that's, that's amazing. But I never could have stepped into that role without Seth, you know? Mm. Uh, I mean, the other two too, but Seth carved out some stuff that, that, you know, just he excised some stuff that needed to be out. All that is to say, when you, when you asked about sort of how something has changed, um, like that, that was the part, uh, for me in the last, that, that was last year, last February. And that was one of the most profound things. Cause I'm like, uh, I don't know. It, it was, it was, you know, the best years aren't behind you. Mm-hmm. Uh, cause I lament not leading a church and feel like a failure all that jazz and it was just this picture of um blessed to be a blessing that was so powerful it was ridiculous and that 
I don't know that there was a doctrine, but what it did is it totally reframed um, how I see Jesus and I partnering together. Uh, I don't know. It was just, it was really, really cool. And I was, I was just blown away. I was just blown away. I know that's a, a super long story, but I haven't told, I don't think I've told to anybody. Um, cause it was too special. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Uh, so anyway, <laughs> I don't know how to recover from that. Oh, dang it. I don't think I will. That was so beautiful. Mm. Thank you for sharing that. No, no, uh, you're welcome. But it was just so cool. It was just so freaking cool. Yeah. You know? And like how, and that's why I like safe and permission. Like for me, I, I just see so many parallels between how I want to raise my kids and how God raises me. Mm. You know, like why does yeah. God give me so much freedom? Because he wants maturity. Why doesn't God write down all the answers? Because he wants wisdom. I mean, it's the same freaking things. Yeah. And, and, and I'm just like, Wow. Um, and I, and I heard about this story about these two parents that went to like pride rallies for the LGBTQ population and, and they just would have free dad hugs and free mom yes, hugs. Yes, I read have about, you heard that about too. them. Yeah. And you know, they, they were just saying, um, for, for some that was very welcome and appreciated, but for others it was deeply, deeply moving. Yeah. And you're sitting there and going, my goodness, what a great picture. Yeah. for what pastoring and blessing and ministry could look like, you know? Yeah. So anyway, Tim, you got anything? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I now, now I feel like I'm stewing on all that. And I think that I'm very much in the middle of that, pro, that season of life right now. God is reintroducing me to everything. So it's mm. a lot. And I don't want to go on for a long time, but it's been wonderful and terrible at the same time so i think right. i'm learning i'm learning a ton but it's been it's painful and wonderful right <laughs> but maybe it's a longer liminal, story baby. for another day i i kind of want to i mean the we've already added an hour to the interview so <laughs> maybe we we cut it off and then we do another one of like this was their personal do you know what I mean? We have a second yeah. one next week. We have two. This is two. Ah, that's good. That's good. That's good. All right. So Tim, your turn next, baby. My turn next. But we'll, yeah. But we'll cut this off for now, so that Tim doesn't have to edit a two and a half hour podcast. <laughs> All right, Bonnie. Any last thoughts? Nope. <laughs> Me neither, Tim. Nope. Well, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord shine his face upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance to you. And in these days, may he give you peace. Thanks, my friends. Appreciate you. Till next time.